Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with traffic enforcement in British Columbia. Of course, we got the continuing truck overpass collisions that just keep happening, even though the government quadrupled the fines. Here's the question for you. Is it a lack of enforcement? You know, you can have all the toughest rules and regulations and laws in the world on a website somewhere, but if you're not enforcing it, does it make any difference? Got Grant Gottkatrew standing by to discuss. Now, have a listen to this report, Global News reporter Nitu Garcha, and the uh, the continuing collisions between trucks and overpasses. Yeah, it just keeps happening. We had the first one of the year the other day. Have a listen. The province says the entire fleet of more than 60 trucks at Chohan Freight Forwarders has been suspended after a flat deck truck carrying what appears to be heavy construction material smashed into an overpass in Delta, B.C. The company claims an impatient driver hit the road before getting a permit and a route plan. Okay, an impatient driver is to blame there. The company saying, don't look at us, it's the driver's fault. All right, let's discuss with my guest, Grant Gottkatrew. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com is his website. Grant, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Always my pleasure. Okay, Grant, so when we take a look at these truck overpass collisions here that just keep happening, what do you think is the problem here? I mean, the, the province did a big news conference a few weeks ago with the, the transportation minister saying, oh, we're getting tough on this. We're going to quadruple the fines. But maybe there's not, maybe it's a lack of enforcement. What do you think? Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what's the uh, commercial vehicle uh, safety enforcement officers are doing. I know that uh, I talked to one of them a little while ago and apparently they're uh, whether this is true or not. um, But their, their numbers have decreased the CVSE flying squad. Um, That may or may not be the case. I don't know. That's something that probably someone should follow up with. Um, But uh, I used to work with them a lot when I worked in West Van and they certainly did a lot of uh, in, uh, um, uh, enforcement and inspections. They do the the, the trucks checks and whatnot. Um, yeah. I, I do see a lot of them with ra- with with radar units in their vehicles now. I don't think speeding enforcement should be one of their mandates. I don't think they should be uh, focusing on speeding enforcement. They should be focusing on inspecting these vehicles. They should be doing blitzes. Quite, quite frankly, yeah. when we had a problem when we had a problem with taxis on the North Shore. We did a huge blitz with CVSE inspecting all the taxi cabs. So this is something, because this is their area of expertise, right? Yeah. Uh, the enforcement from the police, difficult, because not a lot of the uh, uh, traffic officers out there are trained on how to, uh, how to uh, do the inspections of these huge uh, commercial vehicles, whereas that's CVSE's mandate. Uh, it's something that they should be 
focusing heavily on. Okay, Grant, let me ask your thoughts on this now, because this is something that I've heard from a lot of listeners, that a lot of people think in lack of enforcement is one of the big problems we got here, and not just with this truck traffic and this problem, but with traffic enforcement overall, that you are less likely to get a traffic ticket in British Columbia than you are in, say, Alberta or south of the border in Washington State. What do you think of that? Do you think you're more likely to get ticketed in those other jurisdictions? It depends on the type of enforcement people are talking about, because traditionally, and this is even going back to when I started in the job in the 80s, most traffic officers kind of have their handful of their favorite types of tickets to write. And that's what they tend to focus on. If they see the odd one outside of their favorite, they might write it up. But they won't, unless they're told, today we're focusing on slow vehicles in the left lane. Yeah. Um, they won't, you won't see a lot of enforcement in that unless they're directed to do it. You know, they're, they're, the favorites are things like speeding and, and cell phones and that type of stuff. What was your um, favorite? <laughs> Excessive speeds. Excessive speed. Well, why not? Why not? Yeah. Sure. I think that's a that's a good favorite. Let me tell you a quick story here, Grant. Okay. So, you know, I've often heard people say that the they're tougher in say Washington State if you're speeding on the I five. Okay. So several few years ago, I was in Washington State with a buddy of mine. We're on a little road trip. My pal is driving. We we talked about this at the start of the trip. We said we we are not going to speed. On the I-5, because we don't want to get stopped by a state trooper, okay? So we're driving along. It's 55 miles an hour is the speed limit. Sure enough, pulled over. We get the traffic. The state trooper comes up to the window. The sunglass, mirrored sunglasses the whole bit. He says to my buddy who's driving, do you know how fast you were driving? My friend says, 55 miles an hour. Cop says, you are correct. Unfortunately, this is a 30-mile-an-hour zone. And we were like, what are you talking about? He said, you just went through a municipal zone. That was a municipal zone you just went through. There were like a couple of buildings on the highway. And it was, it, well, there was no sign. He goes, no, no, there was a sign back there. You just went through a, a speed zone interchange. I think it was a speed trap is what it was. Have you, have you heard stories like that? that They'll get you in Washington State. It sounds like, oh, oh yeah, for sure. But you, anyone yeah. who's driven I-5 from the lower mainland knows they see the Washington state patrol everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I live in the interior. I go down to the coast quite often. Right. Yeah. I don't really see a lot of police officers on the connector or the, or the Coquihalla. And there's a couple of spots out there in, uh, just, uh, West of hope, but they always sit in the same spot. There's rarely do you see a police car and that's part of the problem. And a lot of that has to do with the, 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 um, most attachments in, in the province of British Columbia are, are woefully understaffed and uh, the RCP detachments. So uh, they don't have enough bodies for the roads. Not, 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 they don't have enough boots for the streets, so to speak. Yeah. And yeah, a lot and of, and, and you know, well, what? I was just going to say a lot of the municipal police departments don't have a, they may have a dedicated traffic enforcement unit. Yeah. But, they, but, but sometimes it's only one or two members. And, and the problem is, is whenever patrol division is running short, the first pay, place they take bodies from is from traffic. So on paper, you might have a six, you might have six members in traffic, but there's only one working because uh, the rest are either on holidays or backfilling patrol. So it's, 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 
It's so Washington state, they have these huge dedicated units like Washington state yeah. patrol and their job is just to get out there and write tickets on the I five. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, here we go with the BC Homeowner Grant now. This debate erupts every single year over this grant. BC is the only province in Canada that has this, this annual grant available to BC homeowners, pretty much all of them. As long as your home is worth less than $2.1 million, you're eligible for this grant. So that's more than 90% of the homes in the province. Now... Does this annual grant make any sense? Is it fair? If you're sitting on a mountain of equity in your home, why should you get an annual grant from the government? There's people who want this thing phased out. I got Paul Sullivan standing by to discuss. Now, leading the charge on this, Vancouver developer Michael Geller has been a guest here on the show in the past. Here he is making the case on against this homeowner grant. Speaking of CBC here, have a listen. 42% of all Metro Vancouver homeowners are mortgage-free. Giving them a grant when so many other people are suffering just simply doesn't make sense to me. Okay, that's an interesting point. If you're mortgage-free, your house is completely paid for, you're sitting on all that equity, why, why should you get a, a grant from the government? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Sullivan. Paul is a property agent and partner at Ryan ULC. That's a global tax consulting and software firm. Paul is a real estate analyst. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Paul, where do you stand on this one, the homeowner grant? Well, you know, Mike, I mean, we just heard 90% of British Columbians benefit from the homeowner grant. That's fantastic. That's a good distribution of, of a, a, a lowering of taxes for, for British Columbians across the entire province, practically. Well, it's 90, you know, 90% of homeowners, though, not 90% of British Columbians. Well, well 90% fine. Of and, you know, I, yeah. and, and I think it's really unfortunate that Mr. Geller wants to bring in the divisive politics that uh, we, we keep seeing in this province, pitting renters against homeowners. You know? I can, you know, I could see maybe putting some income testing on this homeowner grant test, but what I don't want to see is $900 million flow back into government coffers. You know, we're growing yeah. this bureaucracy at, at, at an incredible rate. We've got a 15 to 1 employment ratio in government over private sector, and we want to give them another $900 million. Let's talk about them cutting their budget first before we start giving them more money. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that's how much money the government gives out in this grant every year. That's a that's a lot lot of dough for sure. But speaking, of, let's go back to the means testing thing that you mentioned there. For example, like right now, this program is not means tested, right? So you could be you could be a multimillionaire and, and get this money. Do you think they should bring in some sort of a, an income cutoff or a wealth cutoff for it? Well, well, there is. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Mike, you know, $2 million home is not very much in British Columbia, unfortunately, as we know, because we have a housing problem. You know, homeowners are in debt. 46% of the average Canadian household is going to taxes. You know, I don't think lowering that 46% is a problem here. We need to find ways to make life more affordable, not make it more expensive. And, you know, I think the distribution's fine. I think people at the $2 million range, that, that it's just a simple lowering of the cost. Right. The other thing that's been pointed out by critics, though, is a $2 million home in Vancouver is one thing in a hyperinflated housing market there. But a $2 million home or even like a million dollar home elsewhere in British Columbia, I mean, that could be like a mansion, right? If a $2 million home in, I don't know, Prince George or somewhere else in the interior, I mean, that's like uh, that's like stately Wayne Manor, isn't it? So why should they, yeah. why should they get a grant? Well, well, you know, I, I, I perhaps that's true, but I'm also yeah. going to say that British Columbians are in big debt that are in home ownership. Uh, yeah. You know, we've seen the tax deferral program almost double in the past six years. We've got close to two billion dollars in debt owed by homeowners to the government who can't afford to pay their taxes. And, you know, you used to say, oh, well, you get at this cheap interest rate. So I'm going to do the tax deferral program. It's six point nine five percent now. Uh, on that deferred taxes and people are in debt they don't need to have uh, you know increased taxes on their homes and they can't even afford to pay the taxes that are there okay no it's really interesting that's another one that really gets a lot of attention too is that property tax deferral program when, when does that kick in you got you got to make it there's an age limit on that right was it 50 well it's 55 years old 50, it has 55 to be yeah, it's got to be your principal residence. You have to have 25% an equity in your home, meaning you can't be mortgaged to the tilt already like so many owners are. Um, you know, and if you also have uh, students who you're supporting through education, you can also qualify. Yeah. Um, the number is growing at a staggering level. The only time we saw it sort of plateau or level out was during COVID when nobody went to, to movies, to dinner, on holidays, and finally they saw some sort of leveling out. This year, we're going to see the biggest spike in the tax deferral program we've seen in recent years, and it's $2 billion. That's two times the City of Vancouver property tax budget in debt to the government wow. or not being able to pay your property tax. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not surprised to hear that it's going up that much, that it's a very popular program, especially in this uh, in this economy right now. And the way that the program works, or people are not totally familiar with it, effectively, the government pays your property taxes for you, right? And then basically, they kind of effectively loan you the money, they pay the taxes for you, and you got you have to pay the taxes back later, right? That's why it's called the, the deferral. Yeah. You, the taxes are deferred, yeah. you pay it later, right? Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, it's a charge yeah. against title, just like a mortgage. And uh, if you if you if you pass away, it gets paid off. If you sell the property, it gets paid off. Uh, yeah. It's just debt. Yeah. And and what is the problem? What is your concern there? You think too many people are getting in debt over it? Well, I mean, I just think when when the number doubles in yeah. six years, and and in terms of the number of people engaging in the program and and the value of the debt going to two billion dollars in six years, that's staggering. And so what that tells me is there's an affordability problem, right? Mm -hmm. 
People mm-hmm. can't afford to pay their taxes. Right. And what should be done about that? Lower the taxes. Well, lower the taxes. Get back <laughs> to core services. Stop counting on property owners to pay for all the services that, that society is looking for. Government has to redeploy their resources into their priorities and not look to property owners as the cash cow for all solutions. Speaking of Paul Sullivan, we're talking about the homeowner grant, talking about the property tax deferral program, very popular in B.C. for sure right now. The homeowner grant, B.C. is the only province in Canada that has this. And I don't think, the the B.C. government has already indicated that they don't want to monkey around with this thing and they're not going to touch it. I'm I'm not surprised they don't want to anger homeowners. And you can understand why homeowners... You take a look at some of the studies, they tend to vote, okay? So uh, very few governments or politicians want to anger homeowners. Have a listen to Michael Geller here, okay? So he's calling for reform in this program, but he's also politically savvy. Here's his take on it. Have a listen. Given that 60% of the residents of British Columbia are homeowners, suggesting that you might take away their grant is not politically astute. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a lot of people you'd be taking away that grant from. Do you think that, what do you think of that, Paul? Like the, the politics of it are plain enough, right? Well, absolutely. And eight yeah. out of 10 senior citizens are also homeowners and they live on fixed incomes right. and, and they can't afford these hits. You know, they're already dealing with all the inflationary pressures and all the cost rises across society. So, no, I don't think they, they will go there. Okay, talking about the homeowner grant program in BC, this is a $910 million program. 1.4 million households uh, receive this grant. Calls to phase it out. Paul Sullivan is my guest. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Stu and Langley. Hi, Stu. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Good morning. Um, I I took the uh, deferral on my taxes because my taxes without the homeowner's grant would have been $6,400. And on a sen- being a senior now on a fixed income, that's a huge hit. So just imagine if you took that away, what it would do to seniors, uh, like you were talking earlier. And I'm putting my house back to the government now, basically putting a lien on my house. So at the end of the day, yeah. when it's sold, it will be paid off. But it's saving me $6,400 a year now, plus minus the utility bill, right? Because you do have to pay the utilities from that when you do defer your taxes. And I didn't know that, right? So 6400 bucks is your is your property taxes in Langley? Yeah, if you go to oh. the C column if cuz last year they increased it by 10 and 3 quarter percent. So if that happens every year, just imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years and I can have I feel sorry for seniors in Vancouver in that where their properties are five million dollars and their taxes are ten grand, you know, yeah. and it's just it's it's going out of getting to a point where seniors are going to struggle through no fault of their own with the house prices going up. Mm. You know, they 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 bought their house for fifty thousand dollars and now it's worth five six million dollars, right? So, okay, Stu, thank you very much for the call, Paul. Your thoughts. 
Well, I mean, I can't agree more. You know, the average Canadian household spending 46% of their budget on taxes. Canadians are mm. tired of taxes. It's coming at us from all levels of government. And I don't think we need to return $910,000 to the BC municipal and provincial government. Leave it in the homeowners. Yeah, $910 million. Million, pardon me. Yeah, yeah, $910 million, man. That's a lot. Scott in Maple Ridge. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, hi Mike. You know, I, uh, hi Mike. I'm I'm really uh, you know tired of this stuff too. You know, they, a grant they grant us our money back. It's our money, right? You know, it, yeah. it, I'm also tired of the NDP's attack on home ownership and, and and people who own real estate. And I'm so tired of them telling me how much of the money that I make I deserve to keep and how much I should give to people who don't work as hard as I do and don't do the things that I do. I, I just no. There, there. This is going to be Kevin Falcon's rallying cry. I, I really hope so. How? Okay, let me, Scott. Let me ask you this: How do you think the this government? The how do you think the NDP is attacking homeowners? Well, they they don't believe that you should only be able to sell your home for a profit. Um, the the, the um, what do you call it? The no, what's the thing they put the in property I'm property transfer tax? No, not the, pro- the property transfer okay. tax. The, we got additional vacant, school tax. We got property transfer tax. We got foreign buyers tax. We got empty homes tax. You know what? Yeah. This government's re- introduced more taxes on property than any government in history, and Canadians yeah. are growing tired of it. Yeah, no, they have yeah. introduced a ton of taxes. Scott, thank you for the call. Brent in Victoria. Hi, Brent. Go ahead. Hey, Mike uh, and uh, Scott. Good morning. Um, so as a uh, senior or a low person with low income or a person with disability, I mean, everybody pays more than 50% of their rent. If they're a renter in BC, they're getting basically gouged by uh, landlords, right? So, I mean, they're paying the majority of their income to, uh, to rent. And, you know, with the, uh, this homeowner's grant, I mean, it's been going since 1957. I mean, that's, you know, great for people who have, uh, you know, good equity on their homes and stuff. But what about the uh, renters who don't have a limit? Um, sky's the limit right now. I mean, tenant moves out, new tenant moves in, the rent goes right to the roof. So now I think that the renter should be getting that, uh, that you know, money too, like $500 annually minimum. Well, they're getting um, 400 now. Well, they're getting 400 now on the renter rebate. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I get that, but I mean, that's a one-time thing. But there's nothing saying going forward that they're going to do that. Um, I mean, well, to, isn't it, is it not an annual? Is it not? Well, Paul, yeah. Paul, do you know? Is it not an annual grant? Yeah, my renters? understanding is an it, it is an annual grant. Is my understanding? Yeah. It's also new, so we're we're going to see how that goes. But you know, there's been a lot of studies between the the benefits of being a homeowner versus a renter over a long period of time, and the tables have flipped. It's now better to be a renter. Put your money in the stock market. And, and not make the sacrifices that are involved in home ownership. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not an easy equation. Equation There's, there's sacrifices both sides, but the equity and, and hardship required to save to buy a home is not an easy task in British Columbia. No, not for in, in this market, that's for sure. James and Comox. Hi, James, go ahead. Hi. Um, you and I are both old enough to remember when a 1% or 2% increase in your property taxes in most municipalities was a big deal. And, you know, we're seeing 5 10%, even more than 10% increases annually in some places. I just read that Guelph, Ontario is going to have over 10% for the next five years in a row. 
So, you know, like I would say that it's really unfair for people to go and attack homeowners for getting a small bit of their money back when they're looking at 10% increases. And of course, as you know, if you have a renter in your place, um, if you remove that that grant, all you're doing is increasing the pressure on the rent um, in those those places to try and recoup those costs. So yeah. I really think it's a, one of the few benefits we have in BC that allows us to compete with all the cheaper real estate in most of the rest of the country. James, thanks for the call. Thank you for all the calls on that one. Great topic. And Paul, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, let's talk about cell phones in BC schools. Is this out of control now? Or are BC kids just so en- enslaved and addicted to their phones now that it- it's damaging their education? If you take a look around at some of the schools and classrooms where they have put restrictions and bans on cell phones, I've talked to a lot of teachers who said that they've noticed some improvements. See, some teachers saying they've so- noticed some uh kids interacting with each other more often uh mental health trouble in some kids have gone down that's kind of anecdotal that we're seeing here's the situation in british columbia you got a patchwork of regulations this is down to individual school districts they can create their own rules around cell phones in the classroom some districts have brought in restrictions individual teachers can bring in cell phone rules in their classrooms too. Here's the question now. Should there be a ban on cell phones in BC's classrooms province-wide, everywhere? Got Tara Hool standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Shimmy Kang here, a professor at UBC, on some of the problems related to cell phone use among kids. Have a listen to this. Cell phone use in general is linked to uh, increasing rates of anxiety, depression, body image disturbance, sleep deprivation, uh, reduction of social skills, including the most basic of empathy. Uh, We see problems with even neck and posture and back pain. Okay, it's not just kids, of course. I think we're all attached to to our phones these days. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Tara Hool. Tara is an education advocate, especially for improved mathematics programs in BC schools. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Tara, thanks for coming on today. You're welcome, and Happy New Year to you, Mike. Thank you, Tara. Same to you. Do you think cell phones in schools and cell phones with our kids is a problem in our system right now? Absolutely. It's uh, it's a huge problem and um, it needs to be dealt with at the uh, provincial level because it's only getting worse through, as you have said, these patchwork um, sort of policies that various school districts are trying to implement and individual teachers are trying to maintain. And it's not fair to them. Um, they have enough on their plate. And uh, this is schools are not a place uh, where we babysit our kids. It's a place of learning and cell phones are cell phone use has no place in the classroom for that. Yeah, and what, what is the evidence out there um, that it is a problem? Have there been any kind of empirical studies done on this? 
there's been overwhelming number of studies on, on, on showing that um, it has a detrimental effect on student learning. It also has a detrimental effect on student behavior. Um, UNESCO called for um, a smartphone ban global, globally um, last year, um, specifically pointing the finger um, to cell phones um, because they're just saying that there's just not enough evidence to show how it could actually help a student's learning. Um, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development did a very detailed study eight years ago, which determined that um, there is no single country which technology was used heavily frequently at schools by majority of students, which showed um, that students' performance improved. And most recently, we had um, the program of international student assessment, which was um, conducted last year. The results came in and, um, last month in December, and it showed that Canadian students were actually um, higher than the world average when it came to being distracted in the classroom um, when they were trying to learn. So we know that um, there's been a lot of um, digital um, device distractions amongst our students. We know that teachers are spending, uh, you know, inordinate amount of time trying to police them. And we know that this sort of patchwork um, um, policy or when it comes to our kids isn't working. This is something that the province has to step up and do right by our kids because it's just not working and our um, academic performance is is, is is being hurt by this. So get rid of them. Yeah, it's really interesting. Tara Hool is my guest. Hey, Tara, the last time you were on the show, speaking of academic performance, we were talking about some of these very troubling results on mathematics scores, math scores falling among Canadian students. So we've seen a sharp decline in achievement in mathematics and other subjects too, but math took a, took a big dip in Canada. Now we've seen this in other countries as well. Uh, do you think distract like kids being distracted by their smartphones is part of the problem there it's already been documented multiple times that it absolutely is part of the reason um, about uh, why kids performance is declining sharply um, professor anna stocky is um very knowledgeable professor um, at the university of winnipeg um, and she is the go-to um researcher when it comes to understanding or just analyzing the um, results when we get them in for mathematics performance. And she has just recently um, sent off a commentary from the C.D. Howe Institute to all of our education ministries about improving math performance across Canada. And she has now suggested that one of her recommendations must be a complete a nationwide cell phone ban in schools because the um, evidence just suggests that this is really hurting our kids and we know ourselves even as adults that um, we can't you know leave our phones alone for more than a few seconds or a few minutes at a time and there is no cognitive scientific evidence which indicates that this can be taught to kids when they're younger okay so we need to understand the um the information and the evidence which supports best learning practices in the classroom and uh, getting rid of cell phones would be one surefire way to help improve their academic achievement. Yeah, speaking of Tara, who all Tara is an education advocate, so should cell phones be banned at all BC schools? Right now it's up to individual school districts to create their own cell phone rules. BC teachers can bring in individual rules in their own classrooms as well. Let's have another listen to Shimmy Kang here 
from UBC who's been outspoken on this as well. And here she is talking about when these phones, when cell phones are banned in some classroom settings, what kind of results do we see? Have a listen here. Studies show that when cell phones are banned or limited, uh, we see improved attention, we see better grades, we see better sense of school community. Uh, Teachers are less frustrated in general. Okay, so she makes the argument there for the ban as well. You mentioned Anna Stocky from the University of Winnipeg, who's been a previous guest on this show. I, I really, really admire the work that she does. And she's such a great communicator on a lot of these topics. So, yeah, she's calling for this as well. Our other provinces are doing it, right? Didn't they do it in Ontario and Quebec? We now have both uh, Quebec and Ontario, which are implementing um, province-wide bans. Um, some, some, there are some discrepancies in terms of perhaps maybe what Ontario wants versus what Quebec wants. But the bottom line is there are at least acknowledging that cell phones are a problem. And they need to do something province-wide to help both the teachers as well as the students um, increase their academic performance because it's lacking. So they are making some changes province-wide to stem the learning loss in these provinces and we've already started to see some improvement there whereas in British Columbia we are turning exactly the opposite direction of what needs to be done and it's something that this uh, province seems to be more intense in terms of pushing through this kind of ideological base of maybe you know individual learners uh, individual learning or personalized learning which we know is a failed concept they want to keep on that path and cell phone use is part of that but it is having a detrimental effect you know systems wide and the other thing i just would like to ask is anybody that might be familiar with schools both either at individual level as well as or at the district level would understand how absolutely chaotic it might be to try and now come up with spending even more time trying to implement policies individually, um, where it would just be so much easier for the province to step up and do the right thing by imposing a ban at the province level. So that way, at least everybody's at the same level. And we know the evidence behind that suggests that this is a positive thing in our schools. So why is British Columbia so hesitant to to act on that? Okay, well, there, of course, there is not universal agreement on or opinion on this on this topic there have been people who have argued on the other side of it saying that what we need is just some more education for kids on on how to use their phone effectively so it doesn't it doesn't negatively impact their learning at at school i have talked to parents tara who's who say that i like to know that i can text my child at school if they're for any issue, if I need to coordinate pickups or whatever after class. I've talked to parents who have special needs kids who say, I like to be in touch with my child uh, through text message or phone calls during the day. What do you say to that argument? Like some parents want to be connected to their kids through the phone. Look, if we're going to talk about um, education as a profession, then we have to take what works best for children seriously. And cell phone use in the classroom is not part of that equation. We have lots of opportunities for parents to contact the school office and leave a message to contact their kids. All right. In terms of individual needs, that can be you know, prescribed on an individual basis with the schools themselves. But in terms of um, having this overall sort of idea that I have to you know, reach my child at all time, parents are not understanding how distracting and how damaging it is, not only to their own kid, as well as to their, um, the, all of the other students in the class. It's damaging. And if people want to have an opinion on that, that's up for them to have that. What I'm relying on 
is the empirical data which supports why we are now looking at UNESCO saying you should not be using certain types of technology because they hurt kids. It's why we're now seeing the academic achievement decline so severely, especially in this province where it's never been this bad before. It's because we're also seeing that with the increased use of cell phones, it's hurting our kids. So okay. regardless of people's opinions are, this is where we go back to what is the professional basis and what is the best practice for kids in our classrooms? And cell phone use is not part of that equation. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.